0: Welcome to Tax Transparency Talks, a new EY podcast. In the first five episodes, we will look back at the introduction of the first two big automatic exchange of information regimes, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act or FATCA and the Common Reporting Standards known as CRS. Reflecting upon our experience, we will discuss everything that we went through while implementing these regimes and what lessons we can take forward as new regimes are introduced. We will also look at the challenges facing tax authorities and clients. And we'll dive into how technology and data plays an in increasing part in compliance with these regimes.
1: My name is James Guthrie. I'm a tax partner in EY's London office, and I lead our EMEA customer tax operations and reporting services business, otherwise known as CTools. And this is our tax advisory business who advises clients predominantly on operational tax matters. We're putting together a short series of podcasts for you to be able to access EY's thinking in a slightly more informal setting and hear what some of our practitioners have to say about the uh, topics we're going to be talking about. Today the topic is a little bit of a look back on FATCA and CRS because our diaries told us that it's about 10 years now since they came into force and and that's been a 10 years that's gone quickly but a, a lot has taken place in that. I'm very lucky to be joined today by three of my colleagues, Lushen, Tara and Neil, all of whom now work obviously at EY, but in their former lives worked at competent authorities. So with that, I will hand over to each individual just to briefly introduce themselves. So Neil, perhaps if we could start with you.
0: Yeah, thanks, James. And um, really excited to be here. I'm a senior manager in customer tax operations and reporting services. I joined EY in 2022 from another big four. Um, and I previously worked for HMRC, the UK Tax Authority.
1: Thanks, Neil. Tara?
2: My name is Tara Ferris. I am a partner with EY in our New York practice. I joined EY seven years ago from the IRS via the OECD.
3: Brilliant. Thanks, Tara Lushen. Um Yeah. Hi, James. Um, I'm Lucien Lushan Kwa, and um, I'm a director at EY Netherlands CETORS team. Um, I, worked, I work now four years in EY, um, and previously to that, I worked three and a half years in the OCD Global Forum, assisting and advising jurisdictions with CRS implementation, and before that, I worked seven years in the Ministry of Finance in different posts, um, um, amongst of which I was a treaty negotiator for FATCA, um, and 11 years within the Dutch tax authorities as well in a variety of roles.
1: Brilliant. That's fantastic, Lucien. And I mean, just, you know, taking stock of that, you know, IRS, OECD, extensive Dutch tax authorities, HMRC. So I'm hoping for some really good insights. So maybe we can just dive straight in. So, Neil, tell me about how you first heard about FATCA and how you got inducted into the world of it. So, I started
0: out at HMRC in the large business service, which did corporation tax. And I decided that that was not for me anymore. And I was looking around and I got involved, asked to go to a meeting about something to do with international tax. Um, I didn't really know what I was letting myself in for. um, So I said yes. Um, It seemed interesting. Um, By the time I'd got back to my desk from having had that meeting, the only other member of the team who had been recruited at that point had sent me an email asking me to read the 300 pages of the US Treasury regulations as they related to FATCA. And as you say, the rest is history. And 10 years later on, here we are.
1: Thanks, Neil. That's brilliant. Tara, how did you get involved?
2: Well, I was a principal drafts person of that 300-page regulation that landed on Neil's desk. Um, I had decided that I wanted to pursue a career at the IRS. It's a great opportunity to be involved in drafting and advising on regulatory guidance. Um, and so, when I got there and they knew that I had background in this space, the IRS was very happy to have me to contribute to the drafting of these regulations, the negotiations of the IGAs. So that's how essentially I got started, was they were desperate for people at the IRS who had some background in U.S. information reporting and withholding and could help draft this large regulatory package.
1: So you literally held the pen, Tara. So hold that thought. We will be coming back to you, I am sure.
3: Lucien, how how did you get involved? Well, I started working in 2009 at the Ministry of Finance as a liaison officer between the Dutch tax authorities and the Ministry of Finance in the space of international tax and EU tax law. And in that capacity, I was involved in the TRACE project at the OECD as a delegate of the of of, of the Netherlands, um, and I worked on the implementation package for relief at source. And given my background in withholding taxes, I was then asked to attend a meeting that was requested by uh, the the three largest banks in the Netherlands uh, with the treaty negotiation team, where they introduced us to the topic of FATCA and basically asked us that they introduced us to it and and looked at possibilities where we could maybe end the treaty as a starting position, which was, oh, we, we didn't know at that time what to do, but then eventually when FATCA um, um, was introduced to all of this, we started working on it and then became part of the, the treaty negotiation team to uh, to uh, conclude an IGA on behalf of the Netherlands.
1: And that's really interesting, Lucien, and you know we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment because I think... For me, as I look at this, it's just had a really interesting legislative journey as, as we've gone from, you know, the kind of inception of the idea of a piece of legislation that would impose a huge level, a much more significant level of transparency that, than we'd had previously. And I suppose just reflecting on it, I mean, we think back to, you know, the the, the private banker with a bank in Switzerland, um, you know, and there was, it was much publicized as to how there'd been facilitation of, of U.S. taxpayers to be able to evade tax. And that was very much in the press. And obviously, you know, this very much inspired a political impetus, rather, in the U.S. to come up with a piece of legislation. Um, Obviously, that was against the backdrop, though, of the kind of, you know, an extraterritorial nature in terms of obviously the U.S. couldn't legislate and, and impose it on the rest of the world. Um. We then had, you know, we've heard some of the, the, you know, the organizations, OECD in particular, G20 as well, were very much on board with this. I mean, maybe for you, Tara, what would you, you know, can you just give us a little bit of US perspective behind that? So obviously a political will to bring in this legislation, the mechanics of it, you know, difficult, a hearts and minds exercise working with, you know, economic organisations but also with, with foreign governments, and Lucien and Neil were in seat at the time. So would you mind just sharing a, a few observations as, as to kind of you know how things looked from a US perspective if we wind back kind of ten or twelve years when this was all being formulated?
2: Sure. So I think two important things of note to to give a little bit of backdrop is one is exchange of information isn't a new concept, right? Exchange of information was around many, many years, decades before the start of FACA and CRS, but it was exchanged upon request. And so it was essentially inefficient. So you could argue that automatic exchange of information in a digital age was going to come regardless of, you know, that the chain of events that happen for purposes of the FACA legislation. At the same time, it's important to note where the, the U.S. government considers that there is – the way that our, our tax system works is that we volunteer our income. We say how much income that we earned – on our our tax returns, which uh, may be unlike many, many other jurisdictions. And so the best way to ensure that that information is accurate to encourage veracity, if you will, is to have a third party like a bank do information reporting. It helps us as U.S. persons, of course. We love getting our 1099s for those that are familiar with the U.S. tax system because it helps us figure out how much money we have to put on our income tax returns. And then, of course, when you're looking at those who are perhaps evading taxes, it does encourage you to be more forthcoming if you know the IRS is already getting the information from another source. And so our FACA was really the beginning, I would say, or or one of the beginnings. 1099 was probably the beginning. But we've since continue to roll that ball and expand the amount of information reporting that's done by third parties, again, in order to have um, more compliance in what people are volunteering as far as their their income tax liability. So with that in mind, FACA was a natural way for the legislative action to go, especially like you mentioned, James, in light of the the, the news that was in the press about um, different tax avoidance schemes using non-U.S. financial institutions. Um, And so we started on this journey. And as we started to write the regulations and, and an interesting, important point about FACA, too, is that FACA has a withholding tax aspect of it that was supposed to essentially Encourage compliance amongst non-US financial institutions. But even if they wanted to comply, they couldn't comply because of local data privacy rules. So then that when that became very apparent to us, the IGAs became the logical next step of needing this international cooperation in order to make FACA essentially work. And then from there, the evolution obviously continued to the CRS.
1: Thanks, Tara. An interesting point. So maybe you know, kind of going back to the other side of the pond. So Neil, you were at HMRC. HMRC were the first to sign an IGA. Just, just paint a picture. You know, what, what, what was the, what was the sense there? Was, was there a, a, kind of dawning realization that this was the beginning of a really significant sort of turbocharging of, of, of automatic exchange, as Tara says. It was a sense of how big this was, or did that come later? Do you think?
0: I think, I think the first thing to say is the UK was, was agreed with the, the overall aim of FATCA in terms of improving tax transparency. Um, the UK government at the time, had, had, when it hosted the G20, had mentioned about improving tax transparency. Um, obviously, the US sort of turbocharged it with the introduction of FATCA. In terms of the first ones to sign, I suppose you need to think about it when we were looking at it, it was from the financial services sector in the UK. It's quite sizable. In terms of the number of entities that ultimately have sort of registered for FATCA from a UK perspective, there's over 35,000 that have registered with the IRS in terms of FATCA. So, and that's like in the top five of of registrations. And it was a really broad application as well. So it wasn't just limited to banks, Um, it spread right across the financial services sectors and into some sectors that you wouldn't typically see within scope of this type of regime. So. In terms of going early was about giving our financial services sectors in the UK early certainty that they would have to, you know, get behind this and would have the legislative well, first of all, the IGA would give us the the jurisdictional agreement, but the legislation followed quickly afterwards, they'd have the legislative basis to comply when um, FATCA reporting was first required, you know, following 2014. I suppose we also had the benefit, and Tara made, we obviously share a common language, so negotiating with the US was relatively straightforward. It doesn't mean there wasn't any back and forth uh, between the, the two parties, and especially in terms of some of the entities or products that we ended up getting into our Annex Two, which is a, a part of the IGA, which excludes certain entities or or products from being within the scope of FATCA. And also potentially the US would have to negotiate with over 100 jurisdictions on a sort of bilateral basis. So we wanted to get ahead of the queue there. So um, that, was, uh, that was also a consideration. And I think, you know, Tara may wish to comment, but I think the US soon realized that they couldn't do the individual negotiations, especially around things like the Annex II. Um, and I think moved to an adopted uh, a generic Annex 2 that was broad enough, hopefully, to, to capture the right types of entity and products from being
1: out of scope. Yeah, that's interesting, Neil and Lucien. From a, a Dutch perspective, did, did did some of Neil's remarks do they resonate? I know it took a little bit longer, maybe twelve months or so, for the the Netherlands to conclude on their IGA. Yeah, just paint a picture of you know what was taking place. Was was it a kind of a similar situation? I mean, I'm sure there would have been a desire to give the market certainty, but you know, obviously IGAs are, are not the work of a moment. No,
3: that's correct, uh, Jameson. I think we were. Very engaged in the process, although although not at the table with the G5 to negotiate the model. We were literally in the waiting room um, um, as a smaller country to keep track of um, all the developments. And once the model was out, it became pretty apparent to our industry as well that this is a good way forward, tackling the GDPR issues, but also the annex two that we foresee in in exemptions to the industry and therefore less administrative burden. So we were um, the second country entering into negotiations with the U.S. in London at at Heathrow Airport, where we had back-to-back meetings. And uh, it it just took us a bit more because we had a very elaborate list pulled together with our industry for the Annex 2 on all the exemptions. And it, it took us a long time to discuss this with the U.S., Probably because we had such a variety of, of issues in specific cases and were kind of elaborate and persistent as well in, in, in trying to have everything included, uh, the US went then into more of a format on the Annex 2. Um, we also uh, negotiated an MOU on specific elements and um, we looked very much into the model as well and negotiated several... Add-ons or uh, updates to the model, which we were—I was kind of proud of—but eventually, because uh, it took us a long time um, to get our treaty signed, we were bypassed by. I think it was the Norwegian um, IGA that, that that came second with our <laughs> with some of our reasonings and and add-ons to it. And the reason for us taking more longer as well is that. Uh, We we wanted to have it as a competent authority agreement because we could move faster. But then, um, after consultation with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, it it was apparent that this needed to take place in the form of a treaty which required parliamentary approval. Um, And that took just um, a a very long time as well, given the sensitivities around GDPR uh, from Parliament. Um, And so I think... uh, near the end of 2013, together with the legislation, we had approval to uh, to um, conclude that treaty, ultimately. Thanks, Lucien, And I mean, I
1: think just reflecting on the comments there, what, one of the things that, you know, strikes me and, you know, Neil, I was on the, the working group that, that you co-chaired when you were at HMSC and I was on the UI side, but just how much, the competent authorities did go into bat for industry, which is clearly there was a legislative objective here that had to be implemented. But that was one thing that that kind of was I found incredibly pleasing was industry was listened to and and you know local jurisdiction tax authorities, as we just heard, genuinely tried to you know go into bat on behalf of financial services institutions and. Try and paint the picture for, for you know, the, the real challenges, because, you know, I've talked a lot about, you know, comparing the kind of the, the stages of grief, of anger, denial, ultimately moving to acceptance is something that people went on with this. I mean, maybe a couple of questions. One for you, Tara, first. Was, was there anything that surprised you when, so when people were coming to the table to ask for, you know, carve outs, amendments, variations and so forth? was that something you expected um or was there anything you know of an unexpected nature in there
2: i mean i really think it's that the the number of carve outs that were requested so i think probably in hindsight a lot of people might regret the number of carve outs that were requested because that has resulted in a lot of complexity when it comes to analyzing whether you meet certain requirements and then certifying on W8s and faca self-certs i don't i don't think it's as user friendly as it could have been if maybe the number of exceptions were a little bit more limited i think there was a lot of struggle as many probably recall on you know the inclusiveness of holding companies and whether that was the right approach I know that when we addressed the non-financial space and had to look at how to define essentially an active Nefi, that was quite difficult to strike the right balance there, especially when you have a large group of entities within an active business structure. And then, of course, I know we'll get into this a little bit more, um, the line that we drew on, on trusts was a difficult one and throwing them in one category or the other, and did that make sense? Um, As well as some of the exceptions, I think, that came later in time with the IGAs being negotiated at one point in time and then the regs refining the rules later, there, of course, were certain things that didn't make it into the IGA. Sponsored FFIs for a while was a problem, um, and then some of the rules that we have on, for example, interaffiliates and things like that never made it into the IGA and were probably useful exceptions um, to FFI status or registration status that just never um, made it into the IGAs because of the complexity of updating one set of guidance and then the struggles to up- update another when it requires uh, a renegotiation of the IGAs essentially.
1: Thanks, Tara. That's great. And just, I mean, picking on, on something there, you, you mentioned regret. I mean, Neil, when you look back, you know, perhaps not regrets per se, but things done differently. Are the, are the things that you look back and, and say, well, actually, I wish I had done something differently or we as we, the revenue done something differently, or are you sort of in the Edith Piaf camp of sort of regretting nothing, as it were, and it, it's all fine?
0: I think the overall approach we took at HMRC I wouldn't go back and change that. I mean, you referenced it. We consulted really heavily with industry, sort of between the period of when the model IGA was first announced, so that would have been May 2012, through to sort of September 2012, when we ultimately signed with the US. Um, we had you know, numerous working groups, and what felt like at the time we had hundreds of Additional meetings outside of working groups, either one to one with individual organisations or groups, or speaking at industry conferences, uh, and yeah, that was over that very condensed period of time. And the work, some of the working groups obviously continued several years, running, you know, picking up on pivoting to CRS, etc. So I'd, I'd like to think that the process that HMRC actually did, I wouldn't change anything on that. I think for, there's a personal, possibly. Uh, aspect to this, and that you know I came into FATCA, um probably with not a really broad knowledge of how the financial different parts of the financial services sector worked and what their business models were. Um, and I did a lot of learning in a very short space of time, but maybe if I had a bit more knowledge before I went into this, um, some some of the conversations and meetings we had may have been a bit shorter.
1: No, it's interesting, Neil. And I think it's one of those. I mean, as you say, it was a steep learning curve, I think, for everyone. Um Okay. I mean, Tara, question coming your way, and it's a big one. Will the US, you know, and I'm straying a little bit into CRS away from FATCA here, but as the main agitator in all of this, do you ever see the US coming into a CRS um, position and, you know, becoming a CRS participant? Because, you know, that, that it it does get brought up a lot and and you know it's a big question
2: yeah i mean i think treasury negotiated the igas in good faith so the the idea of reciprocity that's within the igas and noted in the igas was very much something that treasury wished to achieve at the time it was at the time put in the budget proposals um, the problem is 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 the our legislative system just as as you know Lucien and, and Neil had to deal with in, in their local governments, the way that these rules would have to be implemented in the. US is through legislative action. So we did look at what we could change what we could exchange um, that was within the current regulatory and statutory environment and that is and continues to be bank deposit interest paid to non-US persons. So bank deposit interest paid to non-US persons is part of our automatic exchange. You now granted, you know, everyone could, reaction should be, but that's not enough, that's not reciprocal and, and that was well known at the time and continues to be well known which is why our budget proposals even the most recent one that was issued includes provisions that if passed would provide the reciprocity um so we have to see from a legislative perspective i will say that if you look at the OECD and the peer reviews right now from an OECD and peer review perspective the us is being compliant with automatic exchange of information so at least, um, you know that that does not, from a from a global standpoint, that provides us essentially the U.S. a little bit of an ability to stay where we are. But I know that the U.S. continues again to want to exchange information. At least the Treasury does, which and the and the President does, which is why it's in the in the budget proposal.
1: Brilliant. Thanks, Tara. We're almost at time now, but but maybe a last question from me. So. Obviously, you were all very hardworking, professional individuals um, when you were doing your, your past jobs. Were there any slightly lighter moments that you can look back on uh, and that, you've, that you're able to share in those early years of, of, of FATCA being developed and implemented? Lucien, maybe we we'll start with you.
3: Well, I, I got a nickname, uh, actually. Um, instead of Fatka, it became Fatqua which is kind of obvious. Um, <laughs> and then some of my colleagues also were saying, what is this fatwa or fakta? Or, um, but eventually it became fatwa, And I, we used to joke as well that if, if, if we would ever, um, did not succeed with the IGA negotiations, I could always open up a Chinese restaurant with the name Fatwa. <laughs> so
1: that, that always stuck with me. You should. You should probably trademark that yeah just in case tara
2: um i mean for for me i remember trying to do a lot of this stuff while i was um pregnant with my 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 firstborn child now and i remember trying to essentially not let anyone know i was pregnant because i didn't want them to treat me any differently i was working late nights and and i didn't want to be treated with gentle gloves and uh, eventually someone came to me and and they asked me if i could go on a trip to go negotiate some igas and someone looked at me and said tara the jig is up everyone knows you can't travel <laughs> so <laughs> um but i i i continued to work on vaca and in fact i finished drafting the uh, ffi agreement on a sunday and i had my baby on a monday
1: that is efficiency <laughs>
2: defined,
1: Tal, Right? it's there. the
2: american way honestly
1: <laughs> it, it is it is neil how about you um, I, yeah, there's probably a whole
0: library of, of instances, but I, a few that stuck in my mind. Um, I got I got harangued at a few industry conferences as to why the UK was, was entering into this agreement with the US. And I remember one fairly large conference where there were at least 400 people. Um, and we went to, a after I'd finished sort of presenting, we went to questions. And this one gentleman got really, really angry with me um, with my response to a question. And it was one of those things where once he'd finished sort of shouting at me, every single pair of eyes in the audience then looked at me as to what I was going to say. He basically wanted me to stop FATCA, which was obviously never going to be in my power. Um, and I couldn't really comment. So I sort of moved on to the next question. Um, my other my other one, and I'll, I'll make it brief. The IRS, we were in a call with the IRS. It was a scheduled call and they were going to... they. they first thing they wanted to tell us was they'd come up with this name for an identifier that they'd been talking about, about how entities would 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 be tracked. And, and they proudly announced that they'd um, come up with the identifier of a GIN, Global Intermediary Identification Number. And as soon as they'd finished their sentence, I proudly said, well, what we need now is a tax office numerical identifier
1: checker to go with that gin or a tonic. <laughs> Very good. I like it. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you all for for participating today. I hope for those of you listening to this, you found it interesting. We just wanted to have a slightly lighter discussion than maybe sometimes you do in some of the webcasts. This will be the format of the podcasts that we, we record going forward. So hopefully you found that enjoyable. Do join us for the the future podcasts in the series where we'll be developing the theme of AOI as it's developed over the years and unpacking various issues. So thanks very much and join us for the next one.